I'd like to invite to you to turn to page 959 in your Sanctuary Bible. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. A little bit of introduction before we go to our reading. This is near the very beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, near the Sea of Galilee, went up onto a hillside and began to preach. Matthew was there and he was writing furiously, wrote it all down. I've been to that mountain. You can go to that mountain. Uh, what they think is that mountain. It's a guess, but it's a good guess that you can go up there where Jesus stood and gave this. The Sermon on the Mount spans several chapters in Matthew. One of the most famous parts of the Bible, it contains the Beatitudes, which you know of blessed be the poor, blessed be all these other people. It contains the Lord's Prayer. Um, What's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is it's probably one of the most misunderstood parts of the Bible because it has a lot of rules in it. It has a lot of development of the law. In fact, the, the message that we're looking at today is about murder and about calling your friend or your neighbor a fool and equating the two, an intensification of the law that Jesus does. Um, some of the confusion around this is that Jesus is, is kind of a new Moses, just like Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and got the law and brought it down, so Jesus went up on this mountain near the Sea of Galilee and started giving more laws. And so Jesus is just another Moses, just another lawgiver. Um, and in fact, Jesus prefaces the Sermon on the Mount by saying to the people listening, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He actually says that. He says, that's why I'm telling you all this, so that your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And people listening at that time probably thought, well, how? How are we going to pull that off? Because those people look like they've got their act together. They make a big deal about it, at least. I think the proper way to look at the Sermon on the Mount is, while it does contain a lot of moral instruction and, and law, or explication of the law, or intensification of the law, the Sermon on the Mount really should be looked at as a blueprint for what the kingdom of God looks like when it holds sway in our lives. Now, I'm going to say that again. The, the Sermon on the Mount is a reflection of what the kingdom of God looks like when it holds sway in our lives. Uh, and, and that's actually a great description of the kingdom of God because often we see this phrase, kingdom of God, in the Bible, and we say, well, what is that? What is that? The, the standard answer may be the kingdom of God is wherever the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered rightly. That's one classic definition of what the kingdom of God is. There's other definitions, but one of them could be the kingdom of God looks like the Sermon on the Mount lived out in daily life. That could be one definition of the kingdom of God. This particular part of the Sermon on the Mount is an intensification of the teaching about the law that thou shalt not kill from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. And it equates being angry at your brother and calling him a fool with murder. It's provocative. Look for that as we read and a few other things that are relevant to our uh, sermon series on our behavioral covenant with each other. So with that introduction, Matthew 5, 21. Jesus speaking. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to confess to you that for a very good part of my life, I have been known uh, as something of a people pleaser. It's a confession. This is confession time. A people pleaser. Do you know any people pleasers? Besides me, of course, right? Uh, I'm one of those people that likes to make other people happy. I'm happy when other people are happy. It sounds noble now. Don't worry. It's going to kind of, the the veneer is going to come off in a second. But I like to make other people happy. Sometimes I like to overlook my own needs so I can take care of other people's needs. Sounds like a perfect personality type to be a pastor, doesn't it, right? I was somebody who liked to minimize conflict between people. And I'd like to minimize conflict between myself and other people. Um, And so I would avoid people that I was in conflict with because I didn't want to bring up any contentious issues. Um, That's kind of how I've operated for a very good part of my life. Maybe you're like that, and maybe you're the exact opposite, you know? I I hope you're, I kind of hope you're the exact opposite. Because I've I've changed somewhat, and I'm, I'm happy about that. I mean, there's a romantic view of it that um, you're being a nice person, you care about other people. But the other side of it is some of that I did just to make myself happy. Some of that I did to avoid the anxiety that would come when conflict was out in the open. Now, I remember one dinner time conversation in my own family growing up. And a political issue came up between my brother and my sister who were in different political parties at the time. Where they are now, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know where they would be on this matter. And they, they were arguing politics at the dinner table, and my sister started to cry. Um... I don't know why. I mean, maybe she felt belittled or something like that. And she probably was belittled by my brother. And, and so maybe he came on a little too strong. But I remember feeling like that was the worst thing that had possibly ever happened in my family. Because that conflict was out in the open and it made me intensely uncomfortable. And so I have to own that a big part of me being a people pleaser is me avoiding my own discomfort at watching people be in conflict with each other. There's a big difference between being a people pleaser and a people lover. I'm going to get into that difference a little bit later on, but I want to to bookmark that for us. There's a difference between being a people pleaser and a people lover. I want to now go to our text, though. I want to look at our text for today. This is one of the most provocative things that Jesus says, and 
Uh, that's where our sermon title comes from today, I Say to You. Uh, Jesus was talking about the law. He says, you've heard it said that, or written, that thou shalt not murder. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the Ten Commandments. But I say to you. Now that phrase, but I say to you, was kind of a common thing for rabbis to do at that time. They would contrast their teaching with the teaching of another rabbi. So they would say something like, Rabbi Shammai said X, but I say to you something else, Y. So Jesus was doing the same thing, but with a very provocative and revolutionary edge. He said, you've read in the scriptures that it says, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, if you call your brother a fool or you're angry with him, it's just as bad. No rabbi in his time would have ever, ever done that. They would have never contrasted their saying to Scripture itself. They would only have contrasted their saying to what another rabbi had said, another person's interpretation of Scripture. But Jesus here contrasts what he's saying to Scripture itself. That alone was enough probably for some people to pick up stones and stone him to death right there, but it didn't happen, probably because he was at the top of the hill, and he, it's kind of hard to lob those up there, right? He, he, was man, he managed to get away from people at opportune times until he decided not to get away from people at the end. So he, he's actually supplanting or claiming that he has a greater authority to speak about the law than the law itself has. And to a people who were steeped in the law and used it as the absolute authority in everything that they did, this was a really, uh, really like I said, a really provocative thing to do. And what was he doing? Um, as we said before, he was not trying to be a new Moses. He was not trying to make, say, well, the old laws, they just weren't thorough enough. I'm going to make them a little bit better. I'm going to make them a little more authoritative. I'm going to make them, I'm going to enhance their scope. Um, that's not really what he's doing. What one uh, commentator I read says that Jesus was doing something that they called radicalizing the law. He was radicalizing the, 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 the law. The word radix is the Latin word for root, is the core of something. In mathematics, it has a slightly different meaning, but a similar meaning. The radix is the root of something. It's the essence of it. And Jesus was actually going back to the root, to the grassroots almost, of the law. And he was saying, I'm going to teach you what the root of this law is. The law says do not murder, but I'm going to tell you that the root of this law has a lot more to do with how you treat your brother than just murdering him. And we can see that Jesus in no way supplants or discounts the original law. In fact, if you keep the law the way Jesus tells you to keep the law, you'll be keeping the old law as well as the law that he radicalizes. So one example is, of course, the law says, don't murder anyone. Well, I don't see any murderers in the room, I'm, but I could be wrong. I just don't know, right? You know. Um, please don't tell me... Um, if that, I just, I guess I don't want to know that much. But um, that's, I think, for me, is the easiest of the Ten Commandments to keep. Uh, maybe because I've never done it, and I, I don't think I've really been tempted to do it. But this is hard. 
Have I ever been angry at somebody? Well, only every time I get in my car and drive somewhere, right? Have ever called somebody a fool? That word raka is an Aramaic word. It literally means blockhead. Blockhead. Have I called somebody a blockhead? Well, I don't use that word, but... Uh, the, the word there, or call my brother a fool, the Greek word for that is moros. That's where we get the word moron. If I ever called somebody a moron, quite likely. Jesus is telling us that this is as bad as murder, which is a stretch, right? You can call somebody a name. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, which is a lie. Don't tell your kids that. That's not true. Words hurt intensely. Here's the thing. When you keep the radicalized law, you will always be keeping the original law. If I cannot call my brother a fool, if I cannot call my brother a blockhead, if I love him so much that I would never do that to him, there is no way on the planet that I would ever murder him, is there? Because I value him too much. I care about him so deeply that I wouldn't do those things to him. So this is not a new set of laws to replace the laws. It's not a new mountain to replace an old mountain. It's a reflection of what the kingdom of heaven looks like when it has sway over our lives together as a community. And in this kingdom, Jesus says, we do conflict in a very different way than the rest of the world in the kingdom. Um, And he kind of follows it up. And this is the part about conflict, starting in verse 23. If you are in conflict with somebody, he says, and you are about to go up to the altar to make an offering to God, and in that culture would have been the, the temple, temple offering in Jerusalem. He says, actually do something which is also pretty unheard of, to stop in the middle of an act of worship. In, in that time, to not follow through on an act of worship was a big deal. So to actually stop in the middle was a very jarring experience. Culturally, it would not be done. But this idea about resolving conflict with your brother is so strong that God prefers it to a followed-through act of worship. Isn't that interesting? In one sense, in, in God is saying, I care about your horizontal relationships in this moment more than I care about this vertical relationship between you and me because that horizontal problem is getting in the way of this vertical one. And I want you all to myself. I don't want you coming to the altar bringing the conflict with your brother with you. I don't want that. God is a jealous God. He's jealous. He wants all of us. He doesn't want a part of us that's reserved emotional and spiritual energies being spent on something else when we come to him in worship. It's amazing. So this is what he says. Leave it there. Leave your offering there at the altar. Go and find your brother. And as the way he says it is, your brother has something against you. So really it's the onus is not that somebody, not that he has wronged you, but that you know that you have wronged him. But it could work either way. Go and find that brother. Go and find him. And resolve it before you can come back and worship, which is great. Now, um, this is in contrast to being a people pleaser. 
I joked a little bit about people pleasers being noble people. Jesus was not a people pleaser at all. He was a people lover, but he was not a people pleaser. He was not afraid of conflict. He was not afraid of saying truthful things that hurt. He just, he did. And he wasn't terribly uncomfortable when there was conflict around him. He probably saw that as something that could be useful. Um, So what we have here is instead of somebody who's seeking to minimize conflict or sweep something under the rug, Jesus is here encouraging us in, in the kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount, to bring conflict out into the open and to deal with it so that our worship can be completely unreserved. So I want to speak about a little bit about the reality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where the Sermon on the Mount holds sway in our lives. That's one definition of it. But in that kingdom, we're still these human people that have human failings. And so here's some things that are true about the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we will have different opinions about all sorts of things. Uh, In the kingdom of God that was my family, there were two political parties at the dinner table. That wasn't a bad thing. That wasn't a horrible thing. That was just a reality that God had created my brother and my sister with very different personalities and views and developmental things going on in their lives and situations in their lives. And neither of them was right or wrong. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which was which, otherwise you might decide they were right or wrong. It doesn't matter. But the reality was there was differences of opinion about politics in my family. And that's not the end of the world. That's life. That's reality. Now, what we choose to do with, our, with those differences can really wreck the kingdom of God. If our goal is to persuade each other or coerce each other into believing the way we believe, well, then we've got some real problems. It doesn't work that way. It's not actually not possible to do. I can't remember anyone who's ever argued me into believing what they believe. It just has never happened. Just, and I've never been good at doing it to other people. And, and now I've completely given up because it's pointless. I don't do that. But the reality is that we're going to disagree with each other about all sorts of things in the church. And that's not a bad thing. Um, It's just a reflection of the reality that God made us unique and beautiful and in his image. Um, And we actually need each other. We need other perspectives for the spirit to speak to us through each other, to get us to think about things that we haven't thought about before. We need a diversity of opinions on a whole bunch of matters, not on the authority of Scripture. I think we have to agree on that. If we agree on that, though, we can disagree on just about everything else, and we'll be okay, all right? The other reality is that um, we're fallen. We're broken people. And this is the harder part. This is the, the other part was a little lighter, but this is the heavier part. We will hurt each other by what we say and by what we do. In fact, um, we're going to hurt each other more if we're risking more. I've said this before. The more we risk for the kingdom of God, the more likely our elbows are going to bump into each other's ribs because we're going to be active. We're going to be moving. We're going to be in motion. A community that takes no risks at all will see very little conflict and it'll see very little disagreement among itself. But a community that takes risks for the sake of the gospel will meet opposition from without and from within. And there's going to be problems. And there's going to be hurt feelings. 
There's going to be misunderstandings and misinterpretations of motives, and that's going to be hard. So the reality of the kingdom is that disagreement and conflict are normal. That's just part of life. In fact, they're more normal the more we're engaged in the kingdom because the kingdom wants us to risk for God's sake. Here's where we run into a problem. This is a big problem. We run into the problem when we try to distort reality. Now, there's been some famous people in Silicon Valley that have, have, taught, have created what was known as a reality distortion field around themselves. This is kind of an interesting concept. It's, it only permits in the reality that they want to see, and it, it kind of pushes back at, other, at the real reality and tries to create its own reality. Some of the reality distortion field that a church might do is say things like this. Well, there's no conflict here. Or we agree on everything. Or we get along swimmingly here. And that's, that's not reality, is it? Another pastor once told me something really powerful. That God is everywhere in reality. God is everywhere where you can touch something, where you can touch a thing. You can touch the chair in front of you. It's solid. You can feel the air blowing on your face if you flap your hands or if you're under a fan. God is in all those things. But there's one place that God is not, and that's in the lack of reality. God created reality. He's in it. He embraces it. He redeems it. He works through it. God is completely impotent where reality does not exist because he didn't create it, and he's not a part of it. So when we create fantasy about ourselves, God cannot work in it. God is limited in his power. And if we create a fantasy or a, re a distorted reality about ourselves that conflict doesn't exist or that it needs to be avoided at all costs or that disagreement should be avoided at all costs, God will not be able to work in our midst because that's a false reality that he didn't create and he cannot redeem it. He cannot work through it. God is reliably always in reality, but he's never to be found in fantasy. The scriptures today make it clear, even Jesus says, if you have a brother who has something against you, leave your offering at the altar. Go and find him. Seek him out. Reality is that conflict exists. It just does. So I mentioned before that I was a people pleaser. And I, I actually hope to say that I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I would much rather be a people lover, a people lover. I still want to make people happy, but now, if I love them, not at the expense of being honest with them, when God calls me to do so, that's more loving, isn't it? I still want to take care of people's needs, but I realize that I won't be able to do that unless I take care of my needs as well. I can't give anyone some gas from my tank if my tank is empty. So I have to take care of myself as well. I don't want to minimize conflict with people anymore. I want to maximize reconciliation between people and with me. And the path to that is just through a frank acknowledgement that conflict exists and how that conflict came to be a part of our life together. You could almost say that I want to maximize conflict. Who's with me? Who wants to maximize? Yeah, Marilyn. Yes, Marilyn. Who wants to maximize? Nobody wants to maximize conflict. But in a way, 
you kind of want to. Uh, Patrick Lencioni has this book. It's called The Advantage. It's about organizational health. Um, and he has a strategy that, that he says is very useful in meetings. He calls it mining for conflict. Mining. Can you imagine somebody with a pickaxe, you know, digging into the rock? There's some more conflict in there. All right, it's like a mother load. All right, let's keep chipping. Oh, there's more conflict. Let's get it. And uh, the people pleaser in me is like, I want to hide underneath that, uh, that little thing that's like a train that carries the ore out of the mine. I want to hide under that thing and let it run me over. I don't want to go mining for conflict. But that's what he says. Because if you, if you at a meeting or some kind of church event and something comes out, you could try to push it underground. But if you do that, you know what? This is going to come back. It's going to live under the surface. It's going to play out in passive-aggressive ways. It's going to play out in toxic ways. You'll never really have dealt with it. It's still there. He said, you know what? It's better to deal with it there when it came up, when the people who have a stake in it are present in the room and they can all talk about it openly and honestly. And so you dig and you find... Now, you know, after four hours, maybe you need to take a break. Say, well, let's take this up again someday. I mean, you have to have some limits, of course, but... You mine for conflict. You say, at some point, does anyone have any problems with this? Now is a good time to speak up so we all know. We want to make the best decision that we can here. And we can't make the best decision if we don't have all the information. And if you're unhappy, that's information we need. We can't make the best decision unless we know that about you. So to, and so those sort of inviting questions that ask for more so that when we do make a decision, we can be super confident that we made it with the best information that we could and that we were led by the Spirit in the best possible way. So I want to maximize conflict to the extent that I want to get, if it's there, I don't want to create conflict where it doesn't exist. Don't get me wrong. I want, if it's there, I much prefer it come out to the surface so that people can be treated with respect and love and find a way to reconciliation through it instead of all the other ways that we deal with it. The other thing as a sort of a recovering people pleaser is I also don't want to minimize or run from conflict between myself personally and anyone else. And so if I've wronged somebody, I would really like to know. I had a conversation this last week uh, with somebody and they said to me, uh, two years ago, you did this thing and it, it was hurtful to me. And I said, I am so sorry. I, I was really crestfallen. I'm so sorry. You know, I wish I had known that. Um, I, I was oblivious. I'm a human fallen person. I, I have, sometimes there's some things I don't see. I just didn't see that at that time. I'm really glad you told me now. And then I said, you know, was there anything about me that would have made it hard for you to tell me that back then? You know? And the person said, you know, now I wish I had. And they apologized to me for not, for letting it sit for two years, you know? I would much rather know, to me it's like, I'd much rather know if I've hurt somebody. If I've hurt you, I'd much rather know. It's like having broccoli on your teeth, isn't it? Tell someone when there's broccoli on their teeth. Otherwise, they're going to walk around like that all day long, you know? Tell me if I have broccoli on my teeth. Tell me if I've hurt you. Tell me if I've wounded you by what I've said by what I've done. I want to know. I want to work through that to a deeper relationship on the other side. I absolutely do. Now, if 
20 people come to me in one day and try to do this with me, I, I'm going to feel pretty whipped, all right? So if you see somebody doing that to me, say to yourself, maybe next week, right? You can only get so much at one time, but I do want to know. I do want to know. And that's the, I think that's the attitude that Jesus wants us to develop here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't want to avoid anyone that I'm in conflict with. Um, this is another piece of good advice from another pastor. Same pastor. He's really wise. He's my spiritual director. He says this, stay connected. Stay connected to people that you are in conflict with. That's hard to do. But stay connected with them. Because the temptation is to kind of avoid them. To stay on the other end of the room. To not make eye contact. Because if you make eye contact with them, then uh, something magical will happen and you know, something terrible, a conflict will erupt right at that moment. Not, not true. In fact, if you avoid them, they're going to start imagining all sorts of things that aren't true about that conflict. It's hard to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, you could say, if I avoid them, maybe at some point they'll forget what it is that we were arguing about. That's ridiculous. I would never forget anything. I would never, so I would never expect anyone else to forget anything like that. That would never happen. But this is, this is what maybe what it could look like. Just a suggestion. It's kind of an awkward conversation, but I think it's a start. Is if I'm in conflict with somebody and I'm on the other side of the room, I would maybe walk across the room to them and say, I know we've had some things, I know we have some things that we still need to work through. And we will in time. In the meantime, I still want to stay connected with you. And we'll get to that other thing. But in the meantime, let's at least you know, talk and be civil to each other until we can find that space and time where we can work through this thing that's between us. That will go an awful long way because that will signal to that other person, I'm engaged. I'm not running away from you. I'm not making up things about you in my mind. I want to stay connected to you. The good news in all of this is that the kingdom of God is here. It's in this place, and it's holding sway over our lives. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just a bunch of to-dos that we fail at. It's more of a reflection of what our lives look like when we're truly committed disciples of Jesus. It's a reflection of what our lives look like when the Holy Spirit's power flows through us because we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So all these things that Jesus is talking about are things that can be an absolute reality in our lives if we allow the Spirit to work. There's all sorts of things that we can do to stop this. We can stop God working here. We can quench the Spirit. We can create fantasy that conflict and disagreement are bad and to be avoided. God won't be able to work among us if we do that. But the Sermon on the Mount tells us that a kingdom of discipleship is here and now, and it enables us to be ready to do God's work in the world. And so when we live into the reality that conflict and disagreement are normal and natural, and we see them as an avenue towards a deeper relationship with other people, then we're truly making the kingdom a reality in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to be people lovers, rather than people pleasers. Teach us to find those who we are in conflict with, to stay connected, and to reconcile. Lord, we celebrate in advance the deeper relationships that will come when we do that. 
And we pray fervently that your kingdom will rule in this church and that you mobilize us for your work in this world. Amen.